0: I will bless those who bless you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before we learn the story of the Bible, we learn stories from it. These little discrete parts that once you add them together, they become the whole tweenagers have long flocked to David's victory over Goliath, the proto underdog story. Those at the bottom of life have long found solace in God's deliverance of God's people out of Egypt into the promised land. Those at the top of life have long heard the fearful words from the prophets, the likes of Isaiah and Jeremiah vacation Bible schools. We fill them to the brim with tales of Joseph and his very special coat. Samuel hearing the call of God in the middle of the night in the temple. And Jonah's journey in the belly of a big fish. You take all these stories together and you start to add them on top of one another and in the end you get this thing we call the Bible. This book that collects other books of God's purposes with God's creation. I said last week it helps sometimes to think about the Bible as this big trunk. A trunk delivered to our house that's filled to the brim with all kinds of documents, genealogies, and poetry, and prose, and all sorts of things. And when you start to read through them, the more you read, the more you learn about the one who sent us the trunk in the first place, the more you learn about God. Now it is true to say that we cannot understand the New Testament without the Old Testament but even a statement like that makes a mockery of how important the Old Testament is. It is like the operating system for the New Testament. It is what powers it. If you don't have the Old Testament, if you don't have the journey of Israel, if you don't have the journey out of Exodus through into the New Promised Land then the story of Jesus has no context If we don't have the law and the prophets set in motion by the God who speaks to us, then the New Testament is like a house without a foundation. It is like a plant without roots. It's like a well without water. Which is why many, myself included, have long lamented the so-called Gideon Bible. Have you all ever heard of the Gideon Bible? If, If you're at a hotel and it's on the nightstand, it's usually the whole thing. But on college campuses all across the country the Gideons are handing out day after day these pocket sized Bibles but they're just the Psalms and the New Testament which means it's not the Bible. Unless it has the whole of the Old Testament, every single story from Genesis to Malachi, if it doesn't have that then you can't call it the Bible. You have to have both the Old and the New Testament. And the Bible like so many other books is a, meant to be read and consumed and reread and marked in the margins with all these notes and, and dog-eared pages so much so that one day you have to buy a new Bible because you've ruined your first Bible. It's meant to be read but the Bible is also unlike any other book because it's not something from the past. It is for the present moment and it is for the future. We believe that this book is alive that it is saying something even today to all of us. So for a moment, in front of all of you, you have hymnals, but you also have a pew Bible, and I'd like everyone to grab your pew Bible. I can remember as a kid being in worship on Sundays, and someone would stand in a place like this and say, let us all now turn in our pew Bibles to page 713, to hear." and we would all put our index finger right in the Bible, and we'd follow along, but now we have a giant screen. You don't have to go look in your Bibles anymore. I kind of miss that though, that holding it in my hand. So I'd like you to hold that Bible and I want you to turn to page 10. Page 10, by the way, it's near the very beginning. Genesis 12. And once you're there, I want you to keep your finger there to mark your place. But then I want you to flip ahead to page 890. So from page 10 to 890. 890. And once you get there, you will find Malachi 3. So with one finger, you're, you're where uh, Clara started reading. And on your other finger, you're where she finished reading. When she paused in between, you didn't hear it. She read the whole Bible out loud. You had to, be, you had to listen very carefully. So if you, if you have it maybe between your, your index finger and your thumb, I just want you to hold that for a second. Because what is in between your digits is what I'm going to tell you in the next 10 minutes. We're going to get from Genesis 12 to the end of Malachi. From page 10 to page 890. 880 pages in 10 minutes or less. Lord forgive me. The Bible begins, well if you want to hold the Bible for the rest of the sermon, you can. It might be a tad uncomfortable to keep your fingers in there. Uncomfortable might also be the same word you describe how the sermon makes you feel, but that's okay. So if you want to hold the Bible in your hand for the rest of the sermon, you can. Otherwise, you can tuck it safely away where it can do no damage and not upset anybody in the pew in front of you. The Bible, it begins with the beginning. The beginning of all things. The, The Bible opens and it's cosmic in scope. It's the whole of the universe. God makes it all and then it starts to focus on our planet and our people that is humanity and our inability to receive this good gift of creation that God has given to us not just reaching out for that forbidden fruit on the tree but how we still to this day squander this great gift of earth that God has given to us that there is water we cannot drink and land that cannot produce food that we have squandered this gift To use the language of the Book of Common Prayer, the Bible reminds us from the very beginning that we are miserable offenders. From the days of Eden until today. Now after the Tower of Babel, the whole uh, of the human community is divided over the face of the earth, all these different languages. The Bible begins cosmic in scope and now it focuses in on one person. Just one person and his family through whom the whole of the world will be blessed. That's where your one finger is. The call of Abram, of Abraham. God shows up one day and says, you need to leave it all behind. I have things in store for you. I'm gonna send you to a strange place, but we're gonna have a promise between us, a covenant, let's call it. I will be your God. Your people will be my people. Through you, I will change the world. And it's important to remember right here before we press the fast forward button, Because we're going to press the fast forward button That when we read this story We immediately imagine that Abraham is the main character And every subsequent generation is the main character of the story But I want you to hear right here at the beginning That God is in fact the main character of the story From beginning to end The Bible is always primarily about God And only secondarily about us starting with Genesis 12 the Old Testament it tells the story of the covenanted people the promised people God promises to remain steadfast to them if they do the same and as we will see over the next 180 pages we don't hold up our end of the promise but thankfully God always does Abraham is married to Sarah. They want to have a child, but they cannot have a child. And after a long journey with a few harrowing events in which Abraham does some very regrettable things, namely almost killing two of his sons, he has Isaac. And Isaac eventually begets Jacob, the little heel grabber. And Jacob begets Joseph, the one with the colorful cloak, The promise continues through all of their generations, all of their families, until one day they're in a strange place. They're in a place called Egypt and they're slaves. And God says, I'm going to send you, deliver you to the promised land through Moses who, by the way, is a stuttering goat herder and a fugitive from the law, a murderer. God loves to call the strangest people. The people are delivered from their captivity in Egypt. They are brought to the promised land. A land, as the hymn said at the beginning, a land flowing with milk and honey. A land so fruitful that other people will one day want it for themselves. Spoiler warning. They don't get there right away though. It takes them 40 years. 40 years of traveling before they get to the promised land. And they have got some important stops along the way. Manna, water, Ten Commandments. The provision and guidance necessary for the people to be a blessing to others. And then one day, miracle of miracles, they make it to the promised land. That was... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the beginning of Joshua. So they set themselves up in this promised place, and things go well until they don't. Again and again and again. It's Eden all over again. Every time the people grow, every time they amass power, every time they have some wealth for themselves, the more they forget about their promise. Instead of focusing on the well-being of other people, they focus inwardly on themselves, their wealth, their prosperity, their longevity, often at the expense of other people. And when that happens, everything falls apart. And yet every time Israel cries out for God's deliverance, God responds, we don't know what to do, O oh Lord. Okay. Here are some judges. They'll help you figure it out. O oh Lord, we're being attacked from all sides. Okay. Here are some Kings. They'll help lead you and guide you. Now, the judges and the kings, they're meant to lead people in their relationship with God, not away from God. But as Spider-Man reminds us, with great power comes great responsibility. And they squander their power and their responsibility. The people wander off again and again like sheep without a shepherd. A cycle begins of turning away from God, calling out to God when things get bad, God showing up, helping, and then they wander off again. This happens over and over and over again so many times that one day another nation, a nation named Assyria, shows up and takes over the northern kingdom, which only makes things worse. Because the people of God start to pick up other customs, other habits. They move further away from the covenant, further away from the promise. They forget from whence they come. Another century plus passes and there's a new nation, Babylon. Though this time they're aimed at the southern half of the kingdom. They destroy the temple. They send God's people into exile in a strange far off place. For an entire generation they try as hard as they can to sing the songs, to remember the story so they don't forget the promise. That was Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2 Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. But as is God's habit, God listens when the people pray. God listens when they call out for help. So God delivers them yet again from their bondage in a strange place back to the promised land and says you need to rebuild it all. That's Ezra, Nehemiah and a bit of Esther. Thus rounds out all of the historical, though we always have to be careful when we use that word, the historical books of the Bible. What happened to God's people? Next we find Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, and Lamentations, the so-called writings of the Bible. They're right smack dab in the middle. If you open up that pew Bible to the middle, you are very likely to end up in the Psalms. It's right in the heart of the Bible. And all of these writings, both poetry and prose, they convey the heart and the soul of this beautiful life God knits together. These writings convey the great range of emotions that anyone can feel from the highest mountain to the deepest valley. They are written by those who are experiencing the stories in the first part of the Bible. How to hold on to the faith when you're in exile. How to believe that God will still be there for you when you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And they write it all down, and we are still singing those songs all these years later. And then we have the prophets, both minor and major. Prophets, contrary to how we often conjure them in our minds, they're not those who predict the future, though sometimes there's a little bit of that. They simply take the work of truth-telling, of revelation revealing God's truth, which sometimes does have to do with the future. The prophets will show up and say, if you keep neglecting the needs of the needy, it's going to get bad. They say that a lot, by the way. And so throughout all of Israel's history, God calls individuals to the task of truth-telling, of being prophets. They say, come back to God. And sometimes they listen, but more often than not, they don't. We still don't. That's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. We've made it through the whole Bible in 10 minutes. So what do we do with it? What do we do with these 880 pages of God's word? The call of Abraham up until the end of Malachi is described by the theologian Albert Outler as one sweeping story of covenant making and then covenant breaking. God makes a covenant with us and we break the covenant. But God always remains steadfast. No matter how many times we break the promise, God's promise remains. Again, these 880 pages, we encounter every genre you can imagine. Every genre. There's history, there's poetry, there's law codes, family histories, prophetic promises, revelations, all kinds of stuff. It's all written by people who are trying to make sense of the world that God has given them. And so, perhaps... Just as in Genesis 12, the Bible focuses in on one person and their life, we would do well to focus here at the end on just one word and the very first time that word appears in the Bible. Just one word. Jacob is the son of Isaac. He is the grandson of Abraham. And let me tell you, he is a no good, dirty, rotten scoundrel. Jacob is bad news as my mother would put it his name literally means heel grabber which is a little too apt considering what his life looks like over and over again he runs away from his problems all while making more problems for himself and his family he is a liar he is a thief he is a cheat there is nothing holy about this son of uh, Isaac he's bad news he steals his birthright from his brother. He lies to his father. He swindles people out of what they have and he has no remorse for what he's done. And yet, he's a child of the covenant. We teach his story in vacation Bible school like every single year. We read it aloud on Sunday mornings and we all say, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. But why in the world are we thankful for his story? I mean, he's, he's really bad. He's terrible. He's terrible. So why is his story part of our story? Why does God promise to remain with him no matter how much he screws things up? I think the reason God says I'm staying with Jacob is because Jacob isn't his real name. It's not his real name. Go, go read Jacob's story in Genesis sometime. I promise you they, they don't even make soap operas as good as his story. Because at the end of it, life is about to catch up with him. The brother, his twin brother that he swindled everything out of, is out for vengeance. He's out for blood. Jacob catches word that Esau is a day's journey away and he is going to come get his brother. He is afraid, he doesn't know what to do. And that very night, a strange figure appears, and they wrestle. Jacob and this cloaked figure, they wrestle on the banks of the Jabbok River until the sun begins to rise. And as the sun rises in the horizon, this stranger punches Jacob right in the hip and dislocates it forever. And he says, we have to stop fighting. But Jacob refuses. He grabs hold of his wrestling companion. and says, I'm not gonna let go until you bless me. He'll grab her. Who are you, the shadowy figure asks, and he says, my name's Jacob. I'm the heel grabber. And the figure says, that's not your name. He says, your name's Israel because you've wrestled with God and made it to the other side. That's the first time the word Israel appears in the Bible. He says, Jacob isn't your name. Your name is Israel because you have wrestled with God And you've made it to the other side. A few hours later, after this midnight rendezvous, this midnight wrestling match, he finds his brother, Esau, finds Jacob, and he pummels him, not with fists, but with kisses. He experiences forgiveness. And thus, in one of the wildest tales in already wild Bible, we see the power of grace at work. Jacob, Israel, is forgiven by his brother. He is loved by his brother even though he has done absolutely nothing to deserve it. It is grace. It upends, reorients, knocks down, and gets us limping. Israel, for the very first time, discovers the love that refuses to let us go, and he's got the scars to prove it. The good news of the gospel, the good news of this story of Israel is good news for all of us because it means that God meets us in the midst of our sins, not in our successes. God meets us where we are, not where we ought to be. But for some reason, we're just like the people in the Bible. We've got it fixed in our minds that we've got to do whatever it takes to win at the game called life. To use Jacob's story, we will deceive our parents. We will lie to our spouses. We will betray our families. We will dig ditches so deep that we can't crawl out of them all while thinking we're getting better day after day. We will make terrible choices all in the name of self-preservation. And then God says, that's not your name. Your name isn't Fred, it's not David, it's not Brenda, it's not Gabe, it's not Charlotte, it's not Ben, it's not Amanda, it's not Sue McCoy up in the balcony. That's not your real name. Your name is Israel. Because you've wrestled with God and you've made it to the other side. I've long been suspicious of people who say they have everything they want. Anyone say, oh yeah, life's great. I'm really happy. Every time I hear something like that, you know what I think? (laughs) They haven't met God yet. Because when God shows up, God grabs hold, God knocks you around a little bit, dislocates that hip so you have a limp for the rest of your life. If everything's great between you and God, then prepare yourselves because a wrestling match is on the way. If you are struggling with God, you're part of the covenant because God refuses to let go. This story, Israel's story, this one story in these 880 pages, they they remind us that God comes when we are weary and we are wounded. God keeps the promise even when we don't because we're as helpless as Israel. I mean, we are not very good. But then God shows up. I mean, we we can run as long as we want, as far as we want, but one day God shows up with us. God grabs hold. God starts to wrestle with us and we wrestle back. God will hold on to us and then will whisper in our ear who we really are. You've wrestled with God and you've made it to the other side you're blessed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.